You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, it was a bit of a journey getting here today, but I made it. I, I feel like one of those cartoon characters who's been through the wars before they finally stand there on the on the stage saying that uh, everything's uh, normal and everything's fine. But anyway, everything is fine. I am here, I'm at the mic, and it's all good. Today we're going to uh, listen to a little bit of a... uh, uh, a webinar that was put out by the Australia Institute over uh, this week. Uh, it was uh, actually a fascinating conversation between Professor Mark Kenny and Professor Megan Davis. Me- uh, Megan Davis is one of the uh, people who is uh, pushing for a yes vote in the voice referendum and uh, she's a constitutional lawyer, uh, an Indigenous person and she's just recently written an essay reviewing what's been going on in the campaign for the referendum in the quarterly essay, uh, the quarterly review. And um, it's a a fascinating conversation because it goes through a whole lot of uh, different elements that have been uh, pushed up by uh, various parts of the no vote uh, uh, campaign. And and this is setting aside the no campaign that's been put up by... uh, uh, Lydia Thorpe and her people uh, that has a, a very interesting and uh, you know compelling argument behind it but we're talking about the mainstream um, right and uh, what they've been doing which uh, is quite a compelling um, kind of uh, thing to be looking at because it has an effect on uh, every other part of uh, the Australian democracy as it stands. Uh, so I thought I'd uh, put a slice of uh, that particular uh, conversation up for you to listen to. It's only a small part of it. Uh, you can get the whole lot from the um, Australia Institute uh, webpage so, uh, and their channel, but um, this is just a, a, a slice of things that we've actually been reporting on, which was that uh, during the uh, LNP uh, government uh, period, that uh, they stole a whole lot of money that uh, was and resources that were earmarked for Indigenous peoples and basically handed them over to uh, faux uh, uh, Indigenous um, outlets uh, and uh, 
and the argument that is put forward in this conversation is that actually it's the root of uh, the uh, push for the voice, which is fascinating um, way of looking at it. Uh, we're going to move on to talk with uh, a uh, local uh, composer, Alan Griffiths. He's uh, written a song cycle called Such a Fine Sunny Day. It was written during COVID, uh, and it's an anti-war uh, song cycle. Uh, it's going to be performed at uh, the uh, St Paul's Cathedral, Melbourne, on the 25th of November at 7.30pm. It's uh, way away, so but it's. I wanted to talk to uh, this Alan uh, composer, this local Brunswick composer, about his work and to uh, find out... Um, about the performance, I think it's really fascinating how the arts contributes to the politic of uh, peace. Uh, We're going to move on with This Is The Week That Was. We're going to speak to Jasmine Duff, who's uh, from uh, the Victorian Socialists and uh, Socialist Alternative and uh, the anti-racist, fascist uh, group uh, that was organising a uh, rally against the uh, mooted Trump Jr. and Fassage speaking tour, which has been uh, deferred, not cancelled, deferred. There's been lots of uh, interesting mutterings about uh, why this was the case. One of them was that uh, they didn't get enough ticket sales. Let's hope that's the case. But we'll find out from Jasmine about the uh, broader issues that are involved in uh, why people like this should believe that Australia is the dumping ground for their uh, their hateful uh, view of the world. Uh, we're going to finish off with um, Loving Grasslands. Where it's a chat I had with uh, Brendan Gurren. He's got a, a, a series of uh, short videos that are going are part of the uh, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. You can go online right at this moment and have a look at uh, the online servings from the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. There's going to be in theatre at Nova halfway through uh July and you can go and watch some more of these fantastic documentaries there there's local ones as well as international ones but uh particularly interesting uh, about Loving Grasslands is that it's a, a a series of films talking to people who are restoring and managing land in harmony with nature in the Hume Council Green Wedge, which is on the edge of Melbourne, right near Tallamarine. Really fantastic uh, local piece of work. Uh, but before we get on with that, some important information. Smith Street Dreaming is a special gathering of dancers and musicians that will honour elders, families and community through traditional ceremony in Fitzroy. Featuring Uncle Herb Patton, Arnie Janice Bakes, Jiri Jiri Dance Group, Morandaya Yapenya Dance Troupe, Bandok Dati, the Small Ant Brothers, Uncle Johnny Lovett, Lee Sunnyboy Morgan Show, Empath Soul and Firestarter Chris Hume. In Atherton Gardens, corner of Brunswick and Gertrude Streets, Fitzroy. Saturday, July 15th from 1 till 5pm with free barbecue and coffee on site and entry is free. Smith Street Dreaming is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria, the Smith Street Working Group, Leaps and Bounds Music Festival and Yarra City Council, a 3CR supporter.
Serrated tussock is a noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Monero from Fitzroy Primary School, and you're listening to Community Radio on 3CR. And you are, you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. As I said, um, a little bit of a a piece that was put together by the uh, Australia Institute. Um, It was a webinar that was honouring the uh, publishing, really, of uh, the... Uh, Professor Megan Davis's uh, quarterly essay, Voice of Reason on Recognition and Renewal. And uh, as I said, Megan Davis is a constitutional lawyer. She's a professor. She's also an Indigenous person and she's part of the um, uh, the uh, people pushing for a yes vote in uh, the voice rep- referendum. She's speaking here with Professor Mark Kenny. Uh, I, th- I just think it's uh, quite fascinating to learn what's going on and how these people are experiencing this campaign. Just on the uh, using the word racism and the, the, the sort of racism uh, tag that is thrown around around in this debate, I remember quite early on after the election uh, writing that um, advocates of the voice uh, need to be careful not to brand people who are no voters as racist automatically. You know, the campaign has to be about swaying people, persuading people, bringing them on board, not simply pushing them into a camp. What surprised me, though, uh, is the extent to which the no case is branded the yes case racist, which is some sort of Trumpian inversion, it seems to me. But this has really taken hold amongst amongst a number of no campaigners who throw around words they have no idea about, like apartheid, have no appreciation for what apartheid actually was and is. And as I say, racism and, and so forth. I wonder how frustrating that is for you and the extent to which you're able to dissuade people of those things in those face-to-face conversations that you were talking about. Yeah, 100%. I'm glad you raised this because it's been one of my pet peeves about how it's rolled out. So so not kind of a little bit before Albo and a little bit after some columnists started saying, well, I can't say this because I'm being branded a racist. And, you know, I've followed this forensically for six years. I know that there was nothing written where people were branding these columnists racists. In fact, most Australians wouldn't even know that they were going to comment on The Voice and it has become a kind of pet topic for some. But that's absolutely been generated from day one and we can track that because you can't, when you see them write the columns, there's there's actually nobody calling them racist. But it is, it was a, it's an effective Trumpian tool that they've used from day one and created now a narrative that where everybody's saying, well, I can't say anything because I'm going to be regarded as racist, and it's simply not true. I mean, the reality of the conversation is that over the past six years, the polling was pretty robust because I think the bulk of Australians do support it. But also when you go out and have these conversations with Australians, a lot of them, you know, went to school with blackfellas or in in regional Australia, like they're really cognizant of Aboriginal issues, of course. And our focus group showed that last week that, you know, regional Australians are quite literate about the problems facing Aboriginal Australia. That's not the problem. And so you can have those conversations with Australians and they're not 
held in the same way that they might have been 20 years ago in the Howard era. Australia is not, today is not John Howard's Australia. In fact, British-born, non-Indigenous Australians, it's, it's very much a brown country now is what, what the census stats tell us, what our polling tells us. And so the conversations are really different. They're not about racism. They're conversations about democracy and, you know, will this improve the situation for Aboriginal people? There seems to be a really strong desire for Australians to be to know that this will make a difference on the ground. But the race stuff isn't prominent, but it is for the no case. I find the apartheid stuff objectionable, and certainly there are South Africans who've written about how repugnant that argument is. But also, um, I think Warren Mundine the other day implied that the voice will be like the protection era, that it's the return of the mission and reserve era. I think a lot of Aboriginal people were hurt by that suggestion. But also it's 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 ridiculous. It's not the protection era. It's not by any set stretch of the imagination. And so, yeah, there's a lot of ridiculous allegations and suggestions being made and not really being pushed back on either, I, I would have to say. Yes, I, I would agree with that. I mean, that that's kind of, I suppose that's a broader frustration that um, one might have about this whole period is the extent to which it feels a bit asymmetric. You know, the, the no case has sort of gone out all guns blazing and putting forward, um, you know, a sort of a, a scattergun approach of whatever argument might resonate with whatever person, uh, however ridiculous. And we've seen some, you know, descent into the absolutely absurd in the last 24 hours with claims that the voice is um, the reason or the government's commitment to it is the reason that interest rates are as high as they are made by the opposition leader and backed by the, the deputy opposition leader, David Littleproud, today as well. Just extraordinary. Eight out of 44 referendums have succeeded. What I know is about the majority of referendums that have failed has been because of the expansion of federal power. So people say, well, it's Labor, Labor's got a bad, bad record. But actually, Australians don't like the expansion of federal power. They clearly don't. They vote no to it every single time. And that's the bulk of the no's. This isn't the expansion of federal power. It's something very, very different. It's a recognition exercise that's been going on for 12 years. It's disappointing what Dutton did, but I think there's a lot of good analysis about why he did what he did. He either had to go along with it and try and claw back some of those teal seats. He cannot win the next election. He has been voted out of every city and urban region, and he's decided to go the other way. And so what we've found in relation to that is that Australians are now just kind of voting along party lines. And so that's why you've seen the vote drop. And we'll see how that lands in the next month or so. But I think the one thing that's most disappointing about the bipartisanship is that Albanese came in last year. So a lot of the voice is influenced by the eight years of Conservative government. And yeah. I was very disappointed when Little Proud said no before he'd even seen the, the detail. To me, that's one of the reasons for The Voice is that so many politicians in this space don't read anything. Mm. And so a lot of their policy making is off the back of bureaucrats in their ear who are pushing an agenda, elites in their ear pushing an agenda, or anecdote, yeah, when they get in their jet and they fly around and they say, Arnie Mabel from this, you know, community said this and therefore. And, and that's what serves our community so poorly is that so much policy is done by anecdote. 
Well, we see that kind of cherry picking going on now, don't we? Where someone will talk to one member of a community, use that one member who says, I don't understand the voice or I don't support it. And that becomes rationale then for a politician to cite it. You make this point in the essay, politicians historically, right through this, through looking going way back, have just not taken the time to read, no. to actually read the detail, no. understand what they're doing. And the ABC does that a lot. They'll send a reporter out. They'll interview one Aboriginal person and then they'll contact all the campaigns saying, well, we got one a couple of days ago for Western Queensland and they said, oh, TOs are saying they don't support it. And we said, well, who? Who are you talking to? And they said, we want, we don't want to give you names. So they're just going out with microphones and they're running these stories regularly on social media and, you know, these Aboriginal people don't know. And, I mean, it's the easiest kind of journalism in this space. I mean, I think one of the... Um, the key things about Little Proud saying no and then Dutton, but especially Little Proud, is that the Nationals held this portfolio for the bulk of that eight years. And the Australian National Audit Office shows that red tape and bureaucracy increased under the LNP. I don't know why no journalist has ever said to them, what expertise, knowledge or experience do you have that you think you are capable of assessing the voice? You call it bureaucratic? but your government increased the bureaucracy. You say there'll be too much red tape, you increase the red tape. None of this has been put to the opposition in relation to the campaign they're running, when actually they did an absolutely appalling job as government in this space. Their their kind of flagship policy, the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, which I write about in the essay, led to the voice. It's their policy. And and the voice, as you also say in that section, is about was is actually a plea for less bureaucracy, for reducing bureaucracy, not for increasing it. So this argument that gets put forward that this is, you know, uh, will establish a whole a whole new strata of of, of indigenous uh, bureaucrats and uh, you know people on the gravy train and so forth. This is a kind of a discourse that runs on the on the hundred percent. I mean, our people didn't come into Uluru and say we want more bureaucrats in Canberra controlling our lives. That's not what they said. I said this to David Littleproud. They said the absolute opposite. They don't like bureaucrats. They don't like bureaucrats subjugating them and up in their face, telling them what they should and shouldn't do. That's what happens. Our people don't want to move to Canberra. You know, they don't want to be politicians. It's why they didn't call for a voice in the parliament. It's why they didn't want designated or reserved seats. Our mob don't want to belong to professional political parties. They don't want to, you know, have to commit to party discipline and ideological positions. They live in communities because they want to represent their own people and live in their own homes where they grew up on country. They don't want to move to Canberra. Nothing could be further from the truth. But what they would like is the agency to be cut in half. There's half of your savings. The agency that, you know, executes so much power over our our communities and and exercises so much of the decision-making that should be in the hands of mob on the ground. They don't want more bureaucracy. They don't want more Canberra in their face. They want to have a voice, and that's something that they're not getting. And that's partly why the system doesn't work, because it is bureaucrats in Canberra dictating. It is politicians who are governing by anecdote. That's why our people want a voice, because right now nobody incorporates their views into the laws and policies, and so we can see the failures. I was just reading this morning the Productivity Commission in Queensland's report into remote communities, and the the finding was that the bureaucracy kind of just exists for itself and that a big part of the work of the bureaucracy in remote communities in Queensland 
is actually for their own optics. So to take photos of what they, they're doing to say they're doing things. And then the third dot pointing is devastating. And I mean, most people would not have read this report. It's 400 pages long. But it says that the whole system exists to maintain Aboriginal welfare dependency because it's an industry. I mean, and, and that's what, that is what's going on in this country. You know, the Productivity Commission at a national level has said this kind of $30 billion that's bandied around, probably about 27% hits communities. Well, the rest of it is a, is a huge industry on which a lot of people are making a lot of money off disadvantage. And, um, and they don't want the status quo to change because they, they, they're literally going to lose businesses as a consequence of people getting control back over their lives. And, and that's the sad thing about what's going on. And, and I think um, we need more Australians to understand that it is an industry, but it's not an industry that Aboriginal people are benefiting from at all. And you can see that in the statistics. The Uluru Statement is very much about location. So the Uluru Statement is an invitation to the Australian people. The reason being that in the conversations we had at the Dialogues and out at the Rock, the only way to get change in this country will have to be through the Australian people. We will need to convince them of the problem that exists, the structural problem. What is it? And that this is part of the solution to addressing that. So most Australians accept that the status quo is not working. And most accept that politicians are part of the problem. And we know after decades and decades, you cannot go to Canberra and convince them of anything. You cannot. You, it's impossible. It's impossible to get them to listen. So you talk you, know, you talk about a sort of a look that comes in their eyes. Um, they don't listen because I think the quote was, they don't listen because they don't have to. I think it was uh, Mr Yunapingu who said oh, okay. they don't listen because they don't have to. And, I mean, that is at the heart of the Uluru Statement. Part of the constitutional enshrinement is it's not enough to say, I'll oh, just legislate. They will not listen unless they're asked to listen. It's a, it's a powerful thing to mandate that aspect of listening to what it is communities are saying. So that is part of the problem that we've had. And, and we say and did say at The Rock you know, there's two elements to this. The, the whole recognition process um, was turned around and refer the referendum council was set up by Turnbull and Uluru happened because our people said recognition is not equivalent to acknowledgement. That is its dictionary meaning. And there are some LNP people still prosecuting this argument. I will accept the recognition part, but not the voice, which tells me they have not read anything after 2015. That's yes. really problematic. They have not followed the debate at all. I'm sure it's actually just a ploy because they're trying to say, oh, recognition is actually acknowledgement. It's not a voice. A voice isn't recognition. No, what happened was we went to Abbott and we said to Tony Abbott, acknowledgement, the dictionary meaning is not what recognition is and it's not what our people will accept as appropriate and meaningful recognition. We need a new process where we actually go out to people and ask them what is meaningful recognition. And I would say 98% of the Aboriginal people say no to symbolic recognition. Yeah, so you talk about the difference between symbolic and substantive, don't you, in the, in the essay. The, the idea yeah. has to actually have some material outcome from it to mean something because constitutions are, the, are where the business of nations are done, I think is the, the way you put it. A hundred percent. And there's a unity ticket of Aussies and Aboriginal people on this. Hmm. Australians also say don't go to the trouble of a referendum if it's going to be tokenistic and not actually change anyone's lives on the ground. 
which is the key driving, you know, issue with some of the soft yes now is they want to know it'll make a difference. Australians want change in this space. Um, and, and so a symbolic form of recognition at the LNP support, that's not going to do anything. Noel Pearson calls it a plaque in the Constitution. All it is is a statement of fact that says we were once here, we are still here and we'll be here forevermore. That's it. It doesn't actually empower anyone to do anything. It doesn't compel the state to do anything. And there's zero evidence across the world that symbolic recognition in constitutions change any of the material conditions of people's lives on the ground, whether it's non-Indigenous or Indigenous. So, you know, um, recognition in the sense of constitutional recognition, and this has been the case in Skillard for 12 years, is that it sits on a spectrum. There's weak recognition and strong recognition. The weekend is forms of recognition that do nothing. They're, as Noel says, they're the flowery plaques in the Constitution, and they're called weak because they don't compel the government to do anything, they don't prohibit the government from doing anything, and it doesn't empower Indigenous people. At this end of the spectrum, the strong end of recognition, are mechanisms that you put into the Constitution that do prohibit governments from doing anything. For, for, for example, passing racist laws, or they compel governments to do something, like setting up a voice, um, or they empower Indigenous peoples. So, so there's a spectrum of reforms and, and it's not, you know, you, like the dialogues did. In any country, you sit in a, in a room and go, well, the political and legal temperament of this nation means you can't go all the way to that end of the strong spectrum, but the weekend's not going to get you anywhere. So you've got to find out, well, what is it that um, will be possible in terms of political imperative? Because that's really important. That is the 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 it, it's all right to be in the streets as an activist saying rah rah I want this. It's a different thing to go to Canberra and break bread with people that you don't normally talk with to get a substantive change like this. And so voice was what came out of the Uluru process, and partly I think because communities felt so invisible and voiceless and powerless in their own situation. It was heavily informed by the Abbott Government Indigenous Advancement Strategy, which is still in place. That strategy decimated the sector, so much so that when we went out to do the dialogues, people were not happy and not in the mood to discuss recognition. They'd lost programs, policies, funding, jobs, um, all with a stroke of a pen because the Commonwealth bureaucrats and the politicians didn't bother to check what they were scrapping and they just scrapped the bulk of the sector and put it into one bucket and then asked mob to apply for their money again and the first round of money that the Australian National Audit Office found um, went to something like 70 to 80 percent of non-Indigenous organisations many of which were funding their reconciliation action plan um, initiatives and a lot went to not-for-profits like Save the Children who delivered programs that Blackfellas used to deliver in their communities like Yarrabah, um, they took over all the, of the Indigenous services. And, and that all happened under the last government. Um, so voice is recognition. Recognition is voice. That is what our people are saying is meaningful recognition of us in the Constitution. But your point about location is really critical. This is about us coexisting on this continent together. 
um, when we talk about the Uluru Statement, when we talk about country, when we talk about our relationship with other Aussies, we're talking about location and we need to find ways of living and, and working together. Um, and right now where we are situated in terms of the Australian polity and our voice is not recognised in the constitution, we are not recognised in that constitution, then, you know, we're, we're not even co-located as a peoples together. Wage death is the symptom of the problem. What we're seeing is obscenely well-remunerated vice-chancellors. It's appalling how badly universities have been treating their casual workers. They want to pretend that they can continue on with business as usual. Well, comrades, we're here to say no. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR. 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital, and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and in the studio we have Alan Griffiths. Hello, you, Alan. Hello. Thanks for having me, Annie. It's a real pleasure to be here. And uh, we were just hearing some of such a fine sunny day, and it's going to be, uh, that's part of your uh, uh, cycle, isn't it? Your yes. song cycle. Yeah, I wrote a song cycle in the Melbourne's second lockdown out of a real fear that we were going to have a war with Russia. And I didn't know how to react to this artistically. I was in a panic over it. And I found the writings by Munich University student group in the 1940s called White Rose. They were Christian pacifists. 
and they risked their lives calling on Germans to rise up against Nazism before Hitler dragged them down to hell. Really strong words. And they got caught by the Nazis, Sophia Scholl, who the song cycle is dedicated to, and her brother, Hans and their close friend Christopher Probst endured this horrible Nazi show trial and then they were immediately executed. And before Sophie was killed, she said, such a fine sunny day. Oh, goodness. Yeah. But this uh, this song cycle, um, this is the first time I've written libretto and music together. The, the words out of these letters are still salient today. They're so relevant to what is going on. And I imagined how Sophie would have reacted to today's world in case of what's happening with Ukraine. Uh, she back then and White Rose were convinced that Hitler was going to uh, allow Germany to be destroyed. And then the, the Soviets were coming and they were going to completely destroy Germany. So I imagine Sophie alive now. What would she say about the threat we, which faces us all? We, we know about climate change. But there's a more pressing threat than that now. It's the threat of nuclear annihilation. The UN Secretary General stated last year in August uh, and where there was a large uh, celebration, really, on the banning of nuclear weapons. And he said, today, to paraphrase, he said, we are one mistake away, we are one miscalculation away from nuclear annihilation. And I was thinking to myself, how, how can we react to... Uh, what's happening uh, in Ukraine. I was thinking, well, what would Sophie Scholl say? I don't think she would support the uh, acceleration of the war. We need to have a diplomatic solution or else we are going to have a nuclear war. I'm, I'm 100% convinced. Well, well you know, the, uh, the thing that's most interesting, I guess, is the uh, lack of development in human culture uh, to um, certain parts of our society requires conflict uh, for power for power grabs. They see it as a legitimate uh, game to play for uh, furthering their aims. They still believe it, despite the fact the uh, armaments that they've created are so cataclysmic that uh, there will be no winners. Yes, absolutely. Uh, that's uh, 100% correct. The, the human thinking hasn't changed. The well, some peoples have, but how, how, do we, how does that uh, suffuse the entire um, uh, population of the world? Yes. Well, uh, we need to have a narrative which is dominated by the U.S. military-industrial complex. And anyone who dares to speak out is accused of being a Putin puppet. I'm not a Putin puppet. I'm thinking for myself. Look what happened with uh, America's clear intent on invading Iraq. It wasn't a mistake. They lied about weapons of mass destruction and they purposely went in there to steal Iraq's oil. And ISIS was born out of that. Iraq was a disaster. Afghanistan was a disaster. Syria was a disaster. Both the Republicans and Democrats voted a couple of months ago to maintain their illegal occupation of northern Syria and keep on stealing Syria's oil. And they had the temerity to tell Russia, don't do this, don't invade Ukraine. I mean, why these double standards? I but, just, it's unacceptable. Um, as as a, um, a composer, uh, the work that you've been doing has been to try and raise awareness of these mm. issues. That's yes. right, isn't it? Yes, well, I, I've been a long-term peace activist. 
Uh, I grew up in New Zealand during the anti-nuclear campaign. A tiny nation stood up against the might of empire and showed what is possible. And that really uh, formed my mind back then. Then there was the anti-Springbok tours, which were incredible. So it shows what people can do when they get together. Unfortunately, now, the same people, close friends of mine who supported, no, who opposed the Iraq war, now support a further escalation of Ukraine. I just don't understand. Can they not see that we're so close to a nuclear war? A diplomatic uh, solution is the only viable outcome here. So I, as an artist, how can I respond? I didn't know how to respond. Um, I didn't have the confidence to get onto public radio and say, look, this is what's happening. So I, I found comfort in these letters by White Rose, and this music came to me. And then I wrote this piece, which I'm very happy with, and I was thinking, well, what can I do with it now? And it was thanks to COVID that I knew there was one of the world's top opera singers in New Zealand for two years because he couldn't fly back to America, right? And I knew how to get it to him. So I I posed the question, uh, do you like the song cycle? Would you like to record it? And he had a look and he said, this is great. I'd love to do it. I said, well, how would you like to do the world premiere? (laughs) And he said, yes, that would be great. If you can arrange to get it done in Christchurch when I'm here at this time frame, then I'd like to do it. So then I flew over the recording producer from Sydney. I flew over one of Australia's greatest virtuoso pianists, who should be a household name, uh, Nicholas Young. I flew him over. He learned the main piano part. He introduced me to uh, pianist Anna Maximova, who's a brilliant pianist in her own right, to play the second part. So Paul is accompanied by a dramatic piano duet. Some of that you heard in that excerpt. Now, um, It's uh, very grand, I'll have to say. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, the, the pianists, they really pounded it to yeah, the max. Yeah. And just by a lovely uh, stroke of serendipity, uh, one of the world's top audio tech companies uh, wanted to come on board the recording project for us to use their latest recording system called Nexus. And they couriered over from Switzerland to Sydney. And then they had a technician fly over to Christchurch. And we had the best recording equipment for a couple of days in New Zealand. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> it is fantastic. And what's even better is that they commissioned a video about this. And now they're promoting this the video in their 37 offices around the world. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Well, that's and, and of course the opera singer is Paul Whelan. Paul Whelan, yes, yes, yes. and and you're, he has committed to come again to yes. sing. Yes, he's going to uh, perform the Australian premiere. I booked St Paul's Cathedral. It's got a lovely acoustic, uh, beautiful. Oh, the piano. churches of that size, oh, yes. fantastic. It is, it is. Uh, so I've been to some concerts in St oh, Paul's. They're lovely. Oh, good for you. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really heartening to hear. So. Um, it's uh, cold, so you have to rug up. You do. A good point. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully in November it will be warm enough, but th- there is a point there. So the the work, the, the music roars of rage, but also yearns for solace and ultimately love, which is what we humans are capable of. So I, I've had people come to my concerts, really men who I always thought were hardened, openly weep, by being so moved by my music. And I'm thinking, well, I've written all these letters. If we all have to stop nuclear expansion, why not try something new? Why not try putting on a music concert instead? Yeah, yeah, to to generate the uh, discussion. Yes, absolutely. And uh, bring out 
um, the better parts of people's characters. I mean, the the, the you know, it is it's the truth that um, people can be persuaded to do quite terrible things because they believe that there's a greater good mm. that can be achieved. Yeah. But it's quite clear that uh, uh, quite nefarious forces are using that uh, element in humans uh, to pers- prosecute wars and pretend... Uh, m- and there's so much money in mm. in um, militarization yes. that uh, uh, you know it it uh, works against peace, which is mm. uh, which is such a nonsense because uh, peace is what people always want. Mm. Peace is what people need yes. in order to flourish. Yes, absolutely. Well, case in point, and the spending on the arms on Ukraine—it's the largest spending since World War Two, and a large portion of that money doesn't go to Ukraine. It goes to the arms manufacturers in America. They're making millions, literally out of They're making a killing out of this. And as long as we maintain this narrative... That's a terrible uh, saying, isn't it? It is. Making a killing out of it. It is. It is. Well, people are saying, well, uh, the Ukraine government is a democratic government. Zelensky has banned legitimate opposition political parties. It is not a democracy. I wish people would wake up to that. The first thing they do... Well, but how can you have a democracy in the middle of a war anyway? Yes. I mean, that's well, just a nonsense. Well, well, it is. Well, Zelensky has banned elections now. It's, uh, he's suspended. It's not going to be happening in 2014. It's, it's an authoritarian state now. The first thing the new government did in 2014 after they got rid of Yanukovych was to ban the speaking of Russian in public service. Now, a third of Ukrainians speak Russian. So it's a clear signal to the ethnic minority of Ukrainians who spoke Russian that they were the target. And look what happened. Yeah, well, it's been building for quite a long time. I'll actually have to say that um, there was a very disturbing uh, feature film that came out, uh, might have been a couple of years ago, called uh, Dumas. Was it Dumas? It's the name of one of the uh, the major cities. Mm. Um, that's what the name of the film was. And it was uh, talking about what what's going on there. Mm. But this was a number of years ago. So um, it's obvious that uh, the uh, uh, flame has been on this particular uh, crisis for quite a long time. Mm. It must be a really, really difficult uh, place to be um, a Ukrainian. Yes, absolutely. But that does bring into focus the uh, what appalling things that have been going on in Palestine. Uh, uh, it has been said that uh, as the people flee from the Ukraine, um, that they are being uh, offered space. But uh, while the um, Israelis are uh, battering a refugee camp, that uh, the Palestinians continue to uh, be uh, reviled as terrorists. Yes. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the human the UN Declaration of Human Rights still exists, and it's still, even though it needs, of course, updating, it exists for a reason because uh, there is so much uh, uh, abuse of human rights, and people look to this as a model. Human rights are for everyone. A free Palestine is just as important as a free Ukraine. A democratic Ukraine is just as important as a democratic Palestine, but it's not happening in Ukraine anymore. In Palestine, you've got the largest open-air prison of Gaza. Two million people are bombed almost uh, three or four times a year and hardly rates are mentioned in the media anymore. How did we get to this as a human species, that we can 
our hearts open to the people in Ukraine, but we close our hearts to the people in Palestine. How did we come to this as a human species? Yeah, yeah, it requires people to be... uh, I always have thought that critical thinking seems to have fallen off the um, curriculum. (laughs) (laughs) IQ fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, Alan, um, we should uh, say that, uh, remind people that uh, you, they can catch up with uh, this uh, sun, such a fine sunny day, Australian <clears throat> premiere. Yeah, well, on this concert, I'm also having some of my piano music. I've had excellent reviews from some of the top classical uh, critics in the world. I've also got some of, uh, I've, I've got Zoe Freisberg, an award-winning violinist, uh, an award-winning cellist, Gemma Neal, playing with Nicholas Sung, some of my well-received chamber work. It's a top lineup. I'm flying over a concert pianist from uh, New Zealand, uh, Mago Chen. She's Taiwanese. She's brilliant as well. She'll be playing the duet with Nicholas Young. So it's a top lineup. Oh, it sounds really fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah. So how would people get tickets? Because okay. I know it, it, you know you can put it in your diary. It's the twenty fifth of 25th November, November yes. and it's seven thirty p.m. We're giving correct. you fair warning. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, they can um, they can go to my website and scroll down, and they'll see the link there and go to tickets. My website is one word Griffiths Composer. That's G R I F I T H S C O M P O S E R dot com Griffiths Griffiths sorry Griffiths Composer dot com and all lowercase all lowercase yes yeah and we're going to get a sample of some of your other work yes so thank you very much for coming oh, it's been in a huge honour thank you it was lovely to meet you Annie thank you
Leaps and Bounds Music Festival is warming up winter in Yarra. Don't miss the Archie Roach Foundation presenting Singing Our Futures, a fundraiser with Emma Donovan, Kiwak Kennel and Kian at the Corner Hotel. Explore the program by visiting the website lbmf.com.au. Leaps and Bounds, 13th to 16th of July. Yarra City Council is a 3CR supporter. See what I want to think and now's the time to grab it.
a week solidarity, Bricky team listener, when we were reminded of that well-known observation, could it be, could it just be, that one person's terrorist, one person's militant, is another person's freedom fighter? As Zion destroys a Palestinian landless non-people's refugee camp in, as it tells us, a precisely targeted, pinpoint targeted, trained killing attack which destroyed the non-people's non-land refugee camp, precisely targeting destruction of homes, roads, infrastructure, precisely targeting tear-gassing a hospital, all because these terrorists, these militants, live where they have no right to live live, wait for it, wait for it, in their homes. Terrorists and militants, because they have the audacity to object to Zion occupying their non-land, Zion-trained killers controlling their lives, their movements, doing no more than exercising Zion's Yahweh-given right. Zion-trained killers who must, by definition, be terrorized by the terrorists because there's nothing terrifying about heavily armed train killers patrolling your life and deciding when they might kill you, kill your family, bulldoze your home, jail your kids for throwing stones. Imagine how that must terrify the gentle, sensitive train killers. Oh, and decide when your land now belongs to more Zion people who in turn attack you if for some inexplicable reason you don't support them taking your land because that means you're a terrorist, a militant. While the trained killers, the military, are not militant. And they know that despite the rest of the world declaring their controlling life in the non-people's non-land is illegal, it is not illegal but disputed. Not by Zion, which knows there's no dispute about it. It knows it's its land. Yahweh told them that 3,000 years ago, but disputed by the landless non-people, making them terrorists and militants who must be destroyed along with their non-land. Because obviously, if people have no land, they have no land to lose. So an occupied landless people have no right to resist. Worse breaking Zionist law in the non-land that isn't their land. And Zion Supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, assures us that if they observed whatever law Zion decides is the law, like Zion people now own their land, then they could live in peace on the land they haven't got. Lawless, lawless non-people. Although, could it just be, could it just be that one person's terrorist and militant is another person's freedom fighter, a precisely targeted freedom fighter, as precisely as Lord Rupert of Wapping readers would have learned the truth. Well, apart from day one, when the destruction and slaughter didn't warrant a line, but then day two, a comprehensive coverage, two paragraphs down the bottom of a page in the back of the book, but day three, three pars, telling us the terrorists had fired some penny bungers, or, sorry, rockets at good liberty, freedom and democracy, love and Zion. Of course, had those penny bunger rockets caused any damage, that would have been big news up front, and Lord Rupert would have informed us just how heartless these terrorists, these militants are, and the unbearable suffering they impose on poor Zion. But it's not just Lord Rupert. All media go along with the Zion terminology. Terrorists, militants. A military-occupied people have no right to resist. Sorry, a disputed non-people. 
Speaking of non-people, terra nullius non-people, caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, Constable Peter Duffer, got into the spirit of and celebrated NAIDOC week by disputing the right of caring business class high-flying exploiters or sorry, sorry, didn't know where that came from, high-flying contributors to our welfare to support and donate to The Voice. Well, one side of The Voice is you. We can be sure he'd see donations and support for a no-voice for terrenalious non-people, a great social service. It's just that Pete and the team can't get enough detail, detail, detail. As we mentioned last week, Pete is either so dumb he can't get it through what passes as a head, or the no-lot and here doing all they can to obfuscate and confuse a very simple issue. We did point out we would never discount the too-dumb bit, but Pete said the great corporates supporting the voice were not acting, you know, like in the national interest, making it clear, therefore, that recognising there just may have been a pre-1788 history and civilization is not in the national interest that those supporting the contention that terra nullius non-people may not be so nullius nor non are elitist, Pete said. You know, like, the philosophical quality of the uh, debate rose even higher, soared after Minister for the Terra Nullius Non-People Linda Burney accused the no terra nullius voice people of dividing the nation, prompting an angry response from her caring business class hay-seated sheep-shit counterpart that by attacking her lot for dividing the country, the government was dividing the country. See? Logic run riot. The Nine Media Empire was forced to apologise for accepting a full-page ad in Thursday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review from the No Terra Nullius Non-People Voice campaign, considered extraordinarily racist for no stronger reason than it was extraordinarily racist. Expressed by New South Wales Caring Business Class MP Matt Keane, the racist trope of Thomas Mayo in the full-page ad has no place in true blue politics. It's a throwback to the Jim Crow era of the Deep South. Yet, no voice for my own people campaign leader Warren Mundine said there was nothing racist about it. It is factually said. Every time someone disagrees with the left, they always whinge that it's racist. We'd hate to see Warren's idea of what is racist. The mind boggles. Thomas Mayo is, of course, yes, campaign director, a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart, and assistant national secretary of the Maritime Union. Doubly threefold dangerous. Seriously, no satire listener, the ad is disgusting. And yesterday's headline, Nine Apologises After Conservative Groups Ad Draws Fire. We have to wonder why it didn't act before the complaints flooded in. And despite the apology after the facts, so to speak, we're prepared to bet it will retain the income. Look, I wish the socialists of myopic evil unions and lazy avaricious workers would abandon this plan for same work, same pay, because it's becoming more apparent by the day that should caring employers be forced to pay workers the same pay for the same work, the proverbial sky will fall in. Why? Caring employers point out how much it would cost them. Uh, but, but doesn't that mean the cost is the amount you're ripping off workers now? We ask caring employer Michael Bloated.
Good grief, where did that nonsense come from? The costs will be felt by all true blue Aussies, and that's all we care about. Putting my obviously stupid point to rest. But the caring employer, genuine altruistic concern was expressed beautifully by Business Profits Council Supremo Jennifer Wester Wage Cuts. This proposal will make it harder for people to work an extra shift for that extra pay they need to make ends meet. Any wonder we call them caring employers. If ever we wanted proof, there it is. Their only concern, the workers, the people who work. Although, and far be it for us to be iconoclastic, although perhaps Jennifer could explain why people would need to work an extra shift to make ends meet. Surely she isn't suggesting, inferring, no, 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 surely not, not under the greatest little economic order of them all, which put interest rates on hold for a month. Lucky, really, because Tuesday morning, the big day, Capitalist Review P1 headline, Pay growth pressures RBA on rates. Yes, wages, the sole cause of inflation, were yet again causing dyspepsia in the hard-working boardrooms. The slow wages growth caring employers tell us they so wish they could solve is causing massive increases in their prices and profits, which shows how out of touch is the OECD. Not exactly a workers of the world unite hotbed, out of touch, announcing wages had nothing to do with inflation, that it was caused by bumper profits. Any wonder the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review and its corporate supporters ignore such nonsense. Uh, you could control inflation by not putting up your prices so high, your, your bumper profits, we again asked Michael Bloated. Another unintelligent, ignorant question, ignoring the problems we are confronted with in slow wages growth. Doesn't he know how to put me in my place? Mentioned last week, former advisor to former big supremo little Johnny Howard, Nick Hossack, real name, writing a think piece, the think bit's questionable, but telling us PWC, for pricks with confidentiality, was just doing what the caring business class does, that the private sector is different to the public sector. <laughs> Gee, we hadn't noticed that. Like we said, the snake asked, why did you bite me? Because I'm a snake. Well, Nick would have been proud of Uber and Facebook this week when it was revealed they had set up new company structures to evade the new multinational tax avoidance law days before it came into effect on the advice, of course, of pricks with confidentiality who, like Uber and Facebook, were just doing their business, as Nick would say, just doing what the private sector does. And just doing what he does, the Robo-Debt Commission declares former big supremo scummo lied in the witness box. <laughs> Gee, what's new there? <laughs> More on that report next week. Bit of a deadline problem there. Other than Constable Duffer says it's the socialists playing politics. Like, you know, politics. Right. Poor, innocent, caring business class and hayseed and sheep shit parties. And a Freudian, given the subject... When I went back, this is true, I had typed Constable Suffer, a country that suffered thanks to us. Notice Vietnam has banned this Barbie movie, apparently over a scene involving disputed territory with China in the South China Sea. 
pity because I was hoping that after bravely rejecting being destroyed, bombed, the proverbial out of, poisoned and slaughtered by the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world and true blue Aussie in an illegal invasion, this time they may have been rejecting being invaded again by U.S. of cultural crap. While in the week that was sport, culture wars broke out. Forget Ukraine, forget the US of encirclement of and warmongering over evil China and therefore Trublowazi sucking up warmongering. Forget 38 million a day for nuclear trained killers. This is serious. World War III could break out any day as a batsman got stumped after mindlessly meandering down the pitch. Trublowazi cheats. His Most Gracious Majesty's home country and its big supremos screamed, destroying the spirit of war, shame. Pommy Widgers, get a life. He was out of the, he was out. The Antipodean colony and its big supremo responded, showing there can be two sides to the same story. But finally, I've got this brilliant advice for the His Most Gracious Majesty home country supremo. Tell Anthony Albinguzi to stick focus, that you're ending the alliance. Battered stump, Anthony, and save us 38 mil a day for 30 years in the process. Good morning. Yes, good morning, Kevin. That was uh, This Is The Week That Was, and uh, he did a fine round-up. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, we've got uh, Jasmine Duff on the line. She's from the Socialist Alternative, and... Uh, uh, anti-racist, anti-fascist campaign. How are you this morning, Jasmine? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. Good morning. Good morning. You were so frightening that uh, Trump Jr. and Farage are no longer speaking. Indeed, yeah. It's good to see that they've decided to postpone the tour. We're not fully sure that they've um, cancelled. They're saying that they're going to be coming back, so... Yeah, we're hoping to protest them when they do actually come to Australia. Yeah, there's a broader issue here, isn't there, that uh, people like uh, Trump Jr. and Farage should have uh, a following in Australia that, uh, although some people have said that they didn't sell enough tickets... Yeah, it's interesting. Um, So that's what people are saying. Hopefully it's true as well. Historically, far-right speakers like Malo Yiannopoulos... um, Nigel Farage, actually, previously, a lot of these people have toured to Australia because they did have a big audience here. Um, So for years we used to have big protests against them, disrupt their events, those kind of things. Um, Maybe that audience has declined a bit. That would be a really positive thing. But, yeah, I feel like this still is kind of a big audience for this type of racism in Australia, so it makes it important to go out and protest within the streets. Yeah, tell us about the campaign, your campaign. Yeah. Well, yeah, so the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is a campaign that's existed in Melbourne since um, 2015, which was when Reclaim Australia first tried to have big anti-Muslim marches in Melbourne. Um, so we formed in response to their first march where they attracted 1,500 people around about that uh, in Fed Square. And the point of our campaign, it was kind of a, a diverse campaign made up of all different types of working people, and it was about getting together to any time these kind of far-right um, groups showed their faces in Melbourne, coming out to counter-protest them to show that there's a bigger audience for anti-racist politics in Melbourne. Um, and that campaign continues. Um, so our next 
kind of project is people might have seen there's a, a Nazi gym that's operating out in sunshine. Yep. So we've been organising protests against that gym and we're going to have one of those that's coming up as well. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, it's, it's such a bizarre concept um, to uh, uh, label yourself in that way. It is, yeah. I mean, I think in terms of the actual, um, you know, the National Socialist Network, which has um, they've kind of cropped up more recently, you know, and they're obviously the most extreme version of it. So they actively call themselves Nazis, which makes them, yeah, pretty terrifying. And I think it's important for people to take a real stand against them. But at the same time, you can see where a bunch of um, disparate politics comes from because so much of mainstream politics in Australia is based on racism. So, you know, the last time the National Socialist Network seriously mobilised was because Peter Dutton had just come out saying that migrants were responsible for the housing crisis. So a lot of this type of racism comes from the mainstream and it gives confidence to more far-right bigots to, um, yeah, start organising. Yeah, it's a, it's a simplest, a simplistic argument that uh, diverts people atten- its attention from the systemic inequality within our society. Exactly. Yeah, it's about any time there's a problem, any time there's a problem in politics, any time there's an economic problem, pinning the blame on already oppressed groups in this country, um, so that the rich and powerful can, you know, hide their faces. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's fascinating too because if you look at uh, a broader uh, area, that if you look at that particular issue, uh, if you bring back the uh, camera, you can see that uh, uh, countries like Australia are, are what are called uh, Western um, uh, economies. Uh, the uh, populations are ageing, and in actual fact, Australia's uh, Intake of immigrants and other workers is essential for the maintenance of their economic uh, order, effect, effectively. So uh, the whole idea of closing the gates on the refugees is a, a and the uh, immigrants is a false argument uh, directed towards the disaffected uh, poor, I presume. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously false economically, but. As well as that, for me being a socialist, you know, a big part of my worldview is that the economics also shouldn't um, matter to whether people are welcome in a country, but, you know, everyone should have the right um, to settle in a country um, where they have access to safety in particular, but also, you know, we should have open borders and freedom of movement of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I guess I was really just uh, pointing out the... Um uh, two-facedness of the, of, you know, like this use use of uh, the disaffected in this way is so yeah. two-faced, you know. Um, the about Peter Dutton, you know, the Liberal Party and also the um, the business class in Australia that don't actually oppose migration because no. as they can see that it's important for the economy, but they use it as a way of, yes, scapegoating migrants. Um, trying to drive races in Australia. Oh, in, in actual fact, the uh, privatisation of um, uh, pri- uh, uh, tertiary education was a conduit for making money out of uh, people who wanted permanent residency, further money, mm-hmm. um, capitalising on uh, the need for uh, an influx of young people. It's so. It, uh, it's just. It's so incredibly callous. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. Yeah, yeah, and you look at the way that the the visa system has worked in Australia. Sorry, works in Australia, and it's so 
exploited as you know it's based on um trying to bring people here tie them to employers so that um you know the whole your whole uh, life in Australia is based around making money for the boss the, you, you, your campaign, um, you, you know, in order to, I mean, you have projects, as you say, and it's really important that uh, you keep an eye on and keep people aware, I mean, of the of the idea that there's a Nazi gym in Sunshine uh, and the campaign that's required to uh, bring these uh, issues out. Uh, how do you uh, spot uh, that these things are going on? It's a big mix. I mean, some of it is... Um, uh, getting tip-offs from different anti-racists and anti-fascists. Some of it is, um, you know, the, those Nazis themselves, they actually started mobilising in the streets and they were getting a lot of press. There was an article, I think, in the Sydney Morning Herald saying that they had a gym out there. Um, mm. So part of it is that often these groups as well get themselves into the media and try and make themselves prominent, which is how we find out about them. Yeah, right. That's fascinating. All right, so um, thanks for talking to us this morning and uh, we'll keep an eye out for... Uh, I have a, a particular interest in uh, this Farage talk, speaking to her because that okay. was the um, night that uh, uh, the cops knocked me down and broke my arm. So I, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I sort of, you sort of uh, really... Um, uh, uh, you know, I have a very strong personal attachment to yeah. having these people not come here and talk. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, just add, I'll just add one last thing for your listeners, which is that if people are interested in getting involved in the campaign against racism and fascism, at the moment um, we're having regular meetings on the first and third Tuesday of the month, um, and we meet at 6 p.m. at um, IT. At, at where? Cool. Where, where is it at? Thanks for that. And we'll be protesting, yeah, against... No, no, no. Did you hear me? uh, The first and third at 6pm at where is it? At RMIT University in the CBD. Yeah, that's right. I just didn't catch that bit. All right. Very important. (laughs) Yeah, get involved. Um, And we'll be protesting against the Nazi gym on September the 9th. Great. Thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 A 3CR supporter. 
to the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, screening the very best documentaries from South by Southwest, Sundance, Tribeca, as well as the best local Melbourne and Australian documentaries. Online from the 1st to the 31st of July and at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 30th of July. For more information, head to mdff.org.au and cinemanova.com.au. The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. And we're coming to the end of the show on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast and we're going to go out with a short conversation with Brendan uh, Gearan who, uh, with a team of filmmakers, uh, made a, a great little series of four 10-minute um, blocks that are interviews with people who are involved in restoring and managing land in harmony with nature and it's part of the Hume Council Green Wedge. You can catch this online on the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival website Uh, but it's fascinating stuff because it's so close, uh, tantalisingly close to the edge of Melbourne on the um, uh, uh, Tullamarine side of the city. So tell me about Loving Grasslands because it's a a series and it's Mm -hmm. quite clearly a commission of some sort. Yes. Um, Well, I guess it came out of, um, out of uh, one of the good things that maybe came out of COVID-19, one of the few good things, but I found myself at a working, producing, working on projects, developing projects and everything came to a screaming halt with COVID and it was kind of no end inside as to how long it's going to go on for. So, I took the, uh, a job with Hume City Council up on the uh, northern edges of Melbourne, up near towards Tullamarine, there past Tullamarine, um, where it's on the edge of the Victorian plains and uh, there's, it's a, quite of a unique ecosystem out there, which used to be yeah, indigenous grasslands that were uh, in really good condition and, and properly managed, as you know, for thousands of years with uh, fire and grazing. And, and then well, I guess when... Uh, agriculture arrived, we we introduced a whole lot of exotic species and we brought weeds and pests and everything. And we kind of destroyed pretty much, you know, I think it's only about 1% remains intact and diversified. So it was kind of interesting to kind of learn all this when I started working in this bush crew uh, for Hume. And I suppose I think one thing about COVID, it's sort of we slowed down, we looked at the world differently maybe and we kind of um, – maybe looked a bit more of the detail and the minutiae that we might not have uh, taken the trouble to do in the pre-COVID and maybe that's what happened with me. I just, just kind of had time maybe to, to reflect and explore this, the world of, um, you know, Indigenous grasslands and, and kind of what's happening to them and, and why. And, um, and so, yeah, I kind of talked to the the, um, the environmental coordinator at Hume about the idea of, you know, recording them on video and, and he was really enthusiastic. He thought it was a terrific idea and could see the importance of sharing the success stories in this field. And uh, so I, he encouraged me to put a proposal together. So, I, you know, I did write a four or five pager with a bit of a budget outline and a schedule. And, um, and yeah, he said they loved it and they said, yeah, look, go ahead with it. Um, within about a month, I think, of me pitching it, they said, go ahead and, and you can just start straight away because... And I thought, fantastic, you know. So, I, um, yeah, and I think it was, took about six months probably all up by the time I'd found locations and found the right people and, you know, worked out how to sort of tell it. It, was, it wasn't very clear at the beginning. It basically just came together, I suppose, once I started filming it and editing the first one or the second, third and fourth one. Kind of just fell into a similar format, 10-minute length, 
it seemed to kind of be what's needed to tell those stories and um yeah so that's kind of basically how it how it all kind of started well it is fascinating because for a start uh it's so close to melbourne uh yeah. i mean i ride a bike and i um in Melbourne, and I constantly reimagine the landscape that I'm on, trying to imagine what it must have been like without all the roads and all the streets. Because when people are walking on it, they don't realise that there's actually slopes and there's inclines. But when you're riding a bike, you realise that that it's following a track to something that was much more natural underneath. And grasslands, I've done interviews with people about the protection of grasslands. And it's only most recently, really, that people have realised the ecology of Australia is dependent on those grasslands. And your series is a beautiful way of introducing people to what's incredibly local, to uh, a city, Melbourne, quite close, yeah. these things. I was amazed too, actually, that, um, yeah, we could find these stories of such significance right on the edge of the, you know, uh, the Tullamarine Airport, and that one of the challenges was recording out there was the you know, aircraft traffic and and noises and industrial because there's a whole lot of development and, and kind of um, estate planning and construction. Or there has been uh, for a long time, as you know, out that way, and it's kind of you know just um, yeah, I, just what they could, you know. I think Urban Sprawl is a good name for it. it. Just sort of goes on and on and on and. Um, but there are, I think, there's limits, and I think um, the state government is, is has made commitments to the the UN about preserving grasslands because they they're a unique ecosystem. I think they're, they're listed as endangered, and we've made commitments to kind of protect them. But I don't think we've really delivered. I don't think the state governments delivered on those commitments uh, because the land prices. No, I don't so think they and... understand. I don't think they understand yeah. what it's about. And what no. was really fascinating in your first episode was. Uh, culturally, uh, the old uh, Sunbury site is of importance to the people who were involved in that in the 70s. But those yeah. pictures, what a barren place it was and what a, uh, and how it's yeah. changed. Uh, that's what shocked me was um, what, what I found really interesting with that footage of um, uh, that uh, I got hired from... Um, Umbrella Entertainment, the people that distributed that summary documentary, uh, it shows how bare the ground was back in the early 70s. It must have been a few hot summers or whatever, but it's totally bare. But the weeds hadn't really moved in at that stage. It was just at that point where it was really vulnerable and it was exposed and, and bare and exposed to erosion and everything. And um, it just really highlights, yeah, how, uh, yeah, in those since the 70s, um, all these weeds came in and it, when... Deep Mar and Suzanne moved there in the year 2000. It was just a complete mass of weeds. But then in 20 years, since 2000, uh, that couple have basically turned it around and kind of reforested it. And um, it's really interesting just to see those different phases, uh, just with a bit of archival footage. It just gives you a bit of perspective and you get to see how the, the weeds have, have moved in. And, and, you know, it's that bare ground and just not managing it properly letting those exotic weeds build up, not using fire to advantage the indigenous species, which is what fire always does. It, You know, you can put a fire through any grassland, you'll be able to cut out a whole lot of Chilean needle grass and serrated tussock and all these weeds that have come in from New Zealand and South America. And, and you'll favour the local ones that love fire, like kangaroo grass and, and uh, weeping grasses. And so... Yeah, it's you have to. Um, that's why it's kind of gone to the dogs, I suppose, because it's just been 
yeah, it's just kind of just not managed and well, mis you know actively mismanaged is probably a better. Way but to also, it. it's more that people don't know what they're looking at, I guess. Um, yeah. And one of the beauties of this series is that mm. um, you make us see the land in with different eyes. We see it in the eyes of the people who are now managing it. That's thank you. That's good. That's what I wanted to do, and that. That was kind of it was finding those people that had that ability to tell a story to draw you into their world and into their passion for what they've done and I think they all did it they were all different and they're all passionate in different ways but that all kind of uh, reinforced this one idea of just you've got to give you've got to give more to the land you've got to give more and there's more you can do to kind of help um, nature get on with repairing itself and you don't have to do a lot but you have to do a little bit and then you sort of have to get out of the way I suppose and let nature take over that was another theme that kind of kept emerging and um, so yeah it's it's uh, it's interesting just yeah, finding those people I was, you know obviously they're all within uh, 5k's or whatever 10k's around summary and so it's amazing to have found those five people that were quite could tell a really good story were quite comfortable being on camera and you know had some results to show it was it was kind of i felt very fortunate very blessed that they it came together as uh as it did because uh yeah and when i first started i thought oh my god I think i'm getting paid to make a doc series i'm not sure there's actually i can find a story in, in this you know in this no, weeds and... no but the thing about it is that people like they've dedicated themselves to this because they've understood it and now yeah. you give them a platform to actually tell people what it is that's so important yeah. about what they've been doing. I mean, it's not about them. It's about the land. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's like it takes them to create the story and, and for me to come along and kind of find it and tell it and package it, I suppose, and tell it in a way that, you know, people can kind of get it. And, um, yeah, and it, it's, uh, yeah, it's just an interesting collaboration, I suppose, doing yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And yeah. the other the other thing is, um, I guess from a filmmaker's point of view, as well as the person who actually comes from there, you can't unsee all those grasses anymore, can you? That's true. <laughs> uh yeah, like we've we basically uh like we lost the farm back in, in the Riverina in New South Wales back in the eighties after the the eighty two drought, eighty one, eighty two drought. Because their weeds are just we're taking over, and it's the cost of weed control, the cost of chemical control, all that. Uh, and my dad was a bit opposed to that anyway. He just didn't think it was necessary. If you had to kind of spend a lot of money spraying chemicals and then working them into the ground, which you had to do with the in the seventies when they first developed farm chemicals, they had to be cultivated in and mixed into the soil, and uh, it was incredibly expensive and really hard on the soil uh, cultivation and everything. And he just yeah, he basically just said, no, I'm not doing it. And But, the yeah, he lost the farm because we, our yields just weren't, uh, yeah, good enough. And when you've got weeds robbing the ground of moisture and nutrients, it's hard to kind of make a profit. So, you know, it was a very challenging time. But, yeah, I did maybe burn in a few lessons into my memory and um, helped me to kind of um, t- tell a better story now, I suppose, a bit later um, on, on, you know, how to kind of get on top of these things and, and how to turn, yeah, restore a landscape. Uh, to a healthy kind of condition. It's great that this is on at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival, so uh, you must be pleased. It's very exciting. Uh, it's always nice to get a, a you know premiere in your in your hometown. It's only happened a couple of times for me, and uh, yeah, and I, I guess I didn't know what I was doing a bit with web series because they tend not to be uh, a big 
focus of festivals you tend to it tends to be short films and and you know feature films and and kind of what have you but um yes web series are becoming much more of a uh, recognized format i suppose and and um yeah so it was it's great to have these online programs like uh, melbourne documentary film festival has where they can kind of do stuff that is dedicated to the uh to screening on the internet and kind of just give it a you know, give it a sort of a, a platform to, to kind of launch and, and to get it out to, um, yeah, to new audiences, I guess. So it's, uh, it's, really, it's really great to have their support. This song here is uh, it's on the album. It'll be coming out pretty soon. On the wrong side of the road. Hope you like it. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.